Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Here at the Cleveland Clinic, we've developed standardized multidisciplinary protocols for treating patients with the most advanced stages of respiratory therapy using extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO support. The director of that team, Ken McCurry, and Alex Bribriesco, one of our thoracic surgeons who's closely involved with that therapy, put together a really outstanding, comprehensive tall rounds program, which is now available online with complimentary CME, where they had 10 speakers from every aspect of care, including this discussion within the one hour tall rounds frame. For this podcast today, We'd like to highlight one of those presentations, the presentation from Alex Bribriesco, uh, the thoracic surgeon that I mentioned, who's gonna talk to us about some of the recent advances in delivering venovenous ECMO, and also including a very timely update on the experience with ECMO in treating patients with respiratory failure secondary to COVID-19. We hope you enjoy this, and if you're interested in watching the full program, Please join us at the link that's connected to this podcast or by looking up tallrounds.org online. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. McCurry. Thanks for the opportunity to present at this, um, this great multidisciplinary forum. So I'll go through sort of advancements in respiratory ECMO as well as considerations for COVID-19. So uh, Dr. Ananda Murthy already showed uh, this sort of uh, famous slide in 1972, the first reported case in adults of respiratory, uh, or sort of, of ECLS. Um, looked something like this. Very complex. The machinery took up the entire room. The patient did uh, survive, but when you look at what ECLS looked like in 1972 versus what it looks like today, this sort of juxtaposition of photos can kind of tell you how much or how far we've come in terms of advancements in, a, in, ec in ECMO therapy. So one way to kind of break it down is into three, three parts that Dr. Nanamurthy mentioned already. The introduction and development of better cannulas, including single-site dual-lumen cannulas, which I'll talk about in a second. Smaller systems of you know, pump oxygenator systems that made uh, transport and ambulation much, more e uh, much easier. And then also um, modulations of surf surface uh, circuit components to make the blood circuit um, interface much more favorable and minimize thrombosis and things of that nature. But to quickly talk about single-site dual-lumen cannulas, um, development of this was um, can be traced all the way back to uh, Dr. Joe Zwischenberger, who was at University of Michigan with Dr. Bartlett, and then went to University of Kentucky, who began with the prototype of what would ultimately become the Avalon catheter in 1984. In 2007, it was uh, described as the Wang Zwisch cannula for um, uh, Dr. Wang and Dr. Zwischenberger, and then this was um, this became the Avalon catheter cannula as it was um, acquired by Maquette. 2011, there was a publication, one of the first of a series of 27 patients showing very good outcomes. And then a, a new cannula, sort of a competition cannula, um, has been developed by Medtronic or MC3 called the Crescent cannula, which I'll talk about in a second as well. And there was a recent report in Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2020 showing 20 patients using the Crescent cannula. Uh, here at uh, Cleveland Clinic, these are the sizes that we will typically um, select for our adult patients. And highlighting the importance of the single-site dual-lumen cannula is that it helps to minimize recirculation, which um, Pat Grady may be talking about, but the idea is that the oxygenated blood from the machine will go 
directly into the tricuspid valve, while drainage will be in the superior vena cava, inferior vena cava, thereby minimizing recirculation and improving the efficiency of the machine. But also importantly is the single-site configuration allows more patient mobility, um, ambulation, rehab, and things like that. So this is just the the Crescent and the Avalon sort of side-by-side. They look um, very, very similar in terms of their flow characteristics. On the left is the Avalon with the two different sizes and the Crescent on the right. The optimal pressure area between flow and pressure drop is 150 arterial, and then between negative 50 and negative 100 pressure for venous return. So in that sort of optimal sweet spot, the 27 French Avalon performs at close to 3.5 liters, which uh, compares favorably to 26 French, so one French smaller crescent, which has similar flow characteristics. And this just shows you 31 and all the way up to 32 here. So um, this is not an endorsement of one cannula or the other. It's just to say that uh, there is another single-site dual-lumen cannula, the crescent, that we've been employing here as of other centers. Um, other than the cannulas, there's also the uh, an insertion site. Right IJ is typically preferred. However, it was actually uh, Dr. McCurry in the group here in 2012 that described the insertion of a Avalon catheter in the left subclavian position. It was described in three patients, all of whom did very well. And one of the rationales for putting the cannula in the left subclavian position is that with the right IJ position, there can be significant extra length coming from the neck, which can be cumbersome for the patient, and it's definitely uh, more pronounced in shorter patients. So while even this cannula that's relatively close, you can see how the cannula is sort of right against his ear and can be very um, cumbersome for the patient. And then in situations like this, there can be a significant amount of cannula exposed, such that by moving the head from side to side, you can have disruptions in your flow characteristics. So by putting the cannula in the left subclavian upper chest area, it can mitigate some of these issues. And it's potentially more comfortable having it in that location as well. Here's a report from a group at, uh, in Vienna actually describing um, ECMO cannulation from a supraclavicular approach to the subclavian vessels. Now, they did this in 11 patients total, but specifically in six patients, they did a supraclavicular single-site dual-lumen approach, three on the left and three on the right. Um, they said that one of the rationales for this is occasionally the right IJ is not um, accessible, either because cannulas are there, there's infection or thrombosis, and so they had some success with this you know, somewhat novel approach, and they did, did not observe any uh, differences in outcomes or complications. And briefly, a, another uh, single-site dual-lumen cannula is the Protect Duo by Tandem Life. Now, this is technically a right ventricular assist device because it drains from the right atrium and then uh, returns directly into the pulmonary artery and bypasses the right ventricle, as opposed to the crescent and avalon, which drains from the vena cava and then returns into the right atrium towards the tricuspid valve. So I'm going to touch upon um, respiratory ECMO and its use in COVID-19. So it goes without saying that this is, you know, it continues to be a major health crisis. That's a huge consideration for everywhere in the world. Um, Patients may require um, mechanical ventilation with a rate up to 88% in the Italian cohort. More recently, in a cohort from from New York City, about 20% required invasive mechanical ventilation. And mortality rate can be very high, as high as 67%, with that same New York cohort being about 24.5%. 
Now, early reports with ECMO came out of uh, China. They were very small, single or you know, double patient sort of experiences. And in, in pooled reports with an N of about 17, they showed a mortality of upwards of 80%. But when you look at that as well, conventional management, just me- uh, maximal medical therapy and ventilation, they had a mortality of 71%, and that was without proning and things of that nature. So these early reports um, did not dampen people's use of ECMO in appropriately uh, experienced centers. So ELSO um, had um, acknowledged that this was a big uh, situation, and so they allowed every center to join ELSO without uh, membership fees. Those were waived to allow everyone to contribute to the um, ECMO and COVID database. And this database is a live dashboard that's updated daily. So to kind of go through some of that as of uh, early this morning, Total of 836 cases were reported to ELSO in this registry, 68% of which were from the North American uh, chapters and 24 from, uh, from Europe. Median age, as you can see, there was 46, and the time from intubation to ECMO was about was 90 hours, so close to four days. The PF ratio at that time was 72. Overwhelmingly, there was for respiratory failure, uh, 95%, with VV configuration being 91%. In the patients whose ECMO runs were completed, that consisted of 474 patients. The median run time was 9.5 days, and 32% were still in the hospital. And then of those patients who were discharged, um, 271 patients total, 130 were discharged alive, so a survival of 47%. So much better and more what we'd expect than the 80% um, initially reported. But for perspective, um, when in the ELSO, adult non-COVID respiratory ECMO, the survival is about 60%, so a little bit worse than that, but still very favorable given how devastating this disease can be. And the length of stay was approximately 18 days. So um, Dr. Uh, Nicholas Brosey is um, our mechanical circulatory support director down at Cleveland Clinic uh, Weston, and uh, he was kind enough to share with me their Florida experience. We have yet to have a respiratory COVID ECMO patient here at main campus. Um, we've had one for um, cardiac support. But in terms of respiratory support, there have been three patients in Florida, all of whom were able to be successfully liberated from ECMO. Two have been discharged home, and one is um, currently still admitted, but actually um, off the ventilator on TPs doing active rehab. So a fantastic job by Dr. Brosey and his group down in Weston. And then very briefly, um, this is a, a project from ELSO. This is um, available, as, um, as I've kind of documented up there. It's a multidisciplinary uh, international sort of group of um, ECMO experts and who came up with these sort of guidelines of which Dr. Brosey and myself were able to contribute. And so I'd, in the interest of time, just direct everyone to that. It goes through the different considerations in terms of what uh, level of your COVID surge or um, pandemic you might be at. And then here's sort of a breakdown of the different considerations that are touched upon in the, uh, the guideline documents. And then the final thing I'll emphasize is as with regard to anticoagulation, these patients do have a propensity for thrombosis. And so our, um, our goal here at uh, main campus is a PTT 40 to 50 and an anti-10A of 0.2 to 0.3. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.